Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. This is your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you for tuning into this episode to learn a little something about Texas history. Well, it's been a busy spring around Wise About Texas World Headquarters. I've had lots of speaking engagements this spring in connection with the podcast. I thoroughly enjoy those and uh, always love to do them. We're starting to book things around the state, so if you've got a group that you think would enjoy some discussions of Texas history and some of the stories from the podcast and other stories, well, let me know. Uh, Give me an email at host at wiseabouttexas. I'm always happy, if possible, to go anywhere to share the history of this great state. Been spending a lot of time in Austin this spring in connection with my day job as a court of appeals justice and doing some legislative work. The legislature is about to end their regular session this week. This episode is being released on May 22nd, 2017. I've been spending a lot of time up there and uh, doing some Texas history along the way, of course. So uh, once we get the kids out of school here in a couple of weeks, we're getting our summer together uh, It's always a busy time, but as June 1st approaches in Texas, that means one significant event that affects everybody on the Texas coast, and that's hurricane season. So today I want to talk about a topic that was current in the late 1800s, and it's still being discussed today, and that is defending our coast from hurricanes. And I want to tell you the story, the background of one of the greatest civic projects in the history of the country and certainly in the history of Texas, and that is the building of the Galveston Seawall and the raising of Galveston Island. So let's go back to around 1900 and get wise about Texas. First off, I want to mention the 1900 storm. Now, I did three episodes on the 1900 storm, and they were recorded in 2016. They're episodes 23 and 24, And between those two episodes, I did a bonus episode. And the way I broke it up was episode 23 talked about Galveston before 1900 and leading up to the actual day of the storm. The bonus episode in the middle talked about the night of the storm. And that was not a real fun episode to research and talk about because it was was then and remains the greatest natural disaster in American history. But I thought that as a tribute to the victims... Uh, I would discuss what actually happened that night. And then I did episode 24, which was the a discussion of the aftermath of the storm. And what I was trying to do in that episode was paint a picture of the significance of the destruction. But I ended that episode uh, with what I called in, in episode 24 a happy ending, that the resilience of the citizens of Galveston, the charity of the people, not only from Texas, but around the country and indeed around the world, led to the rebuilding of the island city. And it really demonstrated the spirit of Texas. And I want to elaborate. I promised in that episode 24, I'd elaborate a little bit on the seawall and a little bit on the raising the island. And that's what I want to do in this episode as our 2017 hurricane season approaches. Well, the 1900 storm, as I mentioned, was the greatest natural disaster in American history. And it was a hugely uh, destructive storm. And the we don't know for sure how strong the winds ever got. People speculate because the wind meter on the top of the Weather Service building in Galveston was ripped off the building when the wind hit 100 miles an hour. So it was a huge storm. But the comeback 
of Galveston Island was even bigger. Now let me remind you of what Galveston was like prior to 1900. First of all, it was the Queen City of the South. Uh, one magazine article referred to it as the Wall Street of the South. It was certainly the center of commerce in the state of Texas. It had the busiest and most significant port in the state of Texas competing with Indianola to further down the coast for that title. Both cities were fantastically successful. Galveston had just some wonderful architecture, grand buildings, many of which you can still see today. And it was just a beautiful, thriving, growing place. In 1875, there was a very destructive hurricane that hit the port city of Indianola and basically destroyed it. And that caused uh, ripples in the sister port city of Galveston. And discussions were had about how to best defend these port cities against the destruction of these massive hurricanes. Well, in 1886, it happened to Indianola again. And what wasn't destroyed and what had been rebuilt since the 1875 hurricane was destroyed in the 1886 hurricane, and that was the end of Indianola. Uh, it just it never came back. So the citizens of Galveston were very concerned about what would happen if one of these massive storms hit the island. Here's why. The island was eight feet at its highest point between the Galveston Harbor and the coast. So it's hard to imagine today because the seawall I'm going to talk about in a minute is something that all of us uh, who are alive today, that's all we've ever seen of Galveston. But back before 1900, there was no wall. And eight feet was the highest point on the island. So it was a flat spot of sand and what a traditional low country barrier island would have looked like. So you would have gone down one of the north-south streets in Galveston and ended up walking right out onto the beach and into the water. In fact, the train track, the, the train trestle, uh, was built out into the Gulf. Um, it built up, and that was one of the first uh, indicators of the size of that 1900 storm was when the waves started breaking over those train tracks. That really got everybody's attention. But also remember that as that storm approached, Isaac Klein, the meteorologist in Galveston, thought, well, the eight-foot elevation of Galveston would be an advantage because any water that was to would, uh, wash over the island would do just that. It would wash over the island, and there wouldn't be a problem. And then, of course, we know the end of that story is when that storm hit, the water came from the bay and from the gulf and ended up flooding the island in a tremendous fashion. But until it actually happened, many believed Isaac Klein, uh, who claimed to know more about hurricanes than anyone else, and thought that it couldn't happen in Galveston. And many probably thought, as many of us do today, that it won't happen, uh, a, a hugely destructive storm. And so the discussions that were had about the seawall being built, or any seawall, or any sort of coastal defense, uh, remained merely discussions. And then came September 8th, 1900. And I'll encourage you to go back and listen to episode 23 and 24 and the bonus episode in between to get a recap of what it was like that 24 hours during that storm. After that storm, the citizens decided that something had to be done. And it was decided 
um, that they would build a wall around the city to wall off the sea. Now, this idea was in part, at least, uh, born of the experience during the actual storm. And I mentioned this in those prior episodes, but the area from the beach to about Avenue M was totally destroyed. And as it was destroyed, dozens and dozens and hundreds of houses torn apart, the, the wood, the wagons, the structures, the telephone, telegraph poles, everything was pushed in a pile by the ocean. Well, that pile grew, of course, as more streets were destroyed and eventually became a sort of seawall. And it protected the area north of Avenue M from further damage. So they had actually seen how the wall of debris could defend against further destruction, at least from the ocean side. Now, that didn't keep the city from flooding, but it did um, protect the city, at least on the ocean side. So they decided what would happen. uh, Well, first of all, they appointed a commission to study this. And here it was a three-member board of engineers. And the members of the board were General Henry Martin Robert, Albert Noble, and Henry Clay Ripley. Now, let me tell you a little bit about these guys. H.C. Ripley was a member of the Army Corps of Engineers, and he lived in Galveston, so he knew the most about the island and how the water behaved, the idiosyncrasies of the island, the the resources of the area, and how what they eventually uh, contemplated might be accomplished. Albert Noble had designed uh, the breakwater for the city of Chicago. Now, the city of Chicago uh, would not, in the middle 1800s, had a huge problem with disease because it wouldn't drain. And they began actually raising buildings and streets in Chicago to accommodate a sewer system. And that would prove important. Uh, Noble knew all about that, would prove important uh, for the Board of Engineers' work in Galveston. And General Robert had recently retired from the Army Corps of Engineers. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a interesting story about General Robert at the end of this episode. So these three men met and decided that the solution to Galveston's problem would be a seawall. The seawall would have a curved face to help break the wave action. It would be 17 feet above mean low tide, and it would the length of the wall would be over three miles along the ocean front. So the city of, uh, or the county, Galveston County, hired a company called J.M. O'Rourke and Company of Denver, Colorado, and they were to construct the seawall. Now, um, what the seawall was going to end up being 17,593 feet long. So their work began shortly after the issuance of the report in 1902. Now, the wall was going to be 16 feet wide at its base, and the base was going to be a foot above the mean low water mark, and it was going to be five feet wide at the top at its elevation that was 17 feet above the mean low water mark. So this I did go to Texas A&M, but I did not major in engineering, uh, so we're just going to 
read some stats, but I'm not going to try to get into the details of how all this worked. Engineers in the audience can email me and I can give you some detailed reports from 1902 about this, but uh, I thought this was an interesting statistic. Every foot of the seawall contains 40,000 pounds of concrete, and the wall was going to require an embankment to be built up behind it for support to an elevation of almost seven, 17 feet. In a nutshell, this was one heck of a wall. So how do you build something like this? Well, what they did was they started with four rows of round wood pilings that were three and a half feet apart. Now these pilings came from yellow pine in East Texas, of course. We weren't going to get them anywhere else, were we? And each of these pilings was 12 inches in diameter and 40 to 44 feet long. Now that is a long log. But these vertical pilings needed support. So something called a sheet piling was driven just behind the first row of the round wooden pilings to protect the wall from falling apart from the bottom or undermining. And so these, uh, the sheet piling was three planks thick and 24 feet long. And it was October 1902 when the first of these supports were put in. And that was a little bit of a late start. But it was on that date that the first one was driven into the ground and the construction on the seawall began. And when they started driving this piling, they needed to drive it all the way down into the what's called the Beaumont Clay Foundation, which is the clay underneath Galveston Island. And it needed to be anchored in that layer. And it took them 20 minutes to get it down there. Now, if you've ever tried to drive pilings of any kind, for me, it's been fence posts in the Texas clay, then you know what they were up against, only on a much larger scale. After that, the workers would dig a trench, a 16-foot wide trench along the lines of pilings and about three feet deep, and they built some rails straddling this trench, and they put a concrete mixer on a vehicle on these rails so they could go along the line of pilings and dump concrete, and it was concrete that was made out of cement, sand, water, and crushed granite. And that's what they used to fill in around these pilings. And that would be the base of the wall. Then they piled up granite, which would eventually rest in front of the wall, forming a barrier of what's called riprap to break the waves before they actually hit the wall. And some of these granite blocks are upwards of half a ton. And so they would run, after this foundation was poured, they'd run a crane along the foundation moving this granite um, Trains would bring the granite in every day, and uh, the specs for the project included uh, this spec that half of the granite, half of the stones were required to weigh at least 200 pounds, and one-fifth of the stones were required to weigh over 1,000 pounds each, and there was no stone allowed that was less than 18 pounds. So if you go down to Galveston today around the seawall, and I cannot personally vouch for the age of every piece of granite down there, but if you'll go down there and look in front of the seawall, uh, you will still see granite riprap in the same uh, fashion that it was in 1902. Then you have to pour the concrete, and they built a, a mixer called the Big Mixer, and it would produce 300 cubic yards of concrete per day, 
and it had uh, two cranes on it, and one crane would haul the cement and the sand and the granite from railroad cars that were built on tracks next to the tracks where the big mixer rolled, and the other crane would then, uh, they'd mix the the uh, material with water, and the other crane would move it over to the forms on the seawall, and that's how they got it built. They built about 60 feet a day. That would be a section of the wall, and they would connect that section to the next section with lumber using uh, lumber and concrete using a tongue and groove sort of connection and they did it in sections because this concrete would take seven days to dry and then of course you have the the contraction and expansion of the concrete and again I'm no engineer but I know that they had that you had to do it section by section and in this fashion they built the seawall they finished it on July 29th 1904 and here are the statistics for this seawall they used 5,200 railway cars of crushed granite, 1,800 carloads, railroad carloads of sand, 1,000 railroad carloads of concrete, 1,200 carloads, railroad carloads of round wooden wooden pilings, 4,000 carloads of wooden sheet pilings, 3,700 carloads of granite stone riprap, and five carloads of reinforcing steel. That was a heck of a project. And you can imagine that people who had lived there and had known the island uh, as just eight feet at its highest point must have been amazed that they could walk to the edge of this wall and look out over the ocean below them. Uh, The seawall immediately began to be the number one tourist attraction around. People loved to walk up and down the wall and look at the ocean as we still do today. And of course the businesses followed and they began to locate on the seawall. Galveston had always been a popular tourist destination, but now with this seawall there, they built amusement parks, uh, the big grand bathhouses of the early 1900s, and many, many other amusement and recreational businesses were attracted to Galveston all of a sudden. Let me mention right quick one of the most significant aspects of this seawall project to me, it was brought in within $500 of its budgeted amount. You heard that right, a government project, a wall no less, built within $500 of its budgeted amount, and it was under $2 million. So that was a pretty uh, significant thing to think about, especially in the context of today's discussions about how to best defend the coast against the next major hurricane. Well, the seawall was magnificent, but it was only part of the recommendation of the Board of Engineers, there was another part because the seawall, while it would protect the the seaward side of the island, you still had the problem of the island being on a very low grade. And so the other part of the project was to raise the island, to physically raise the level of the island. So in December 1903, work began on another very ambitious project to raise the city of Galveston. The problem was how to get this accomplished. If you took sand from the beach, obviously you destroy your beach. And if you try to move dirt from the mainland, I mean, that would just be not only a physical nightmare, but a financial nightmare. But there was a company from New York called Gadehart and Bates, and they had a great idea. Uh, the Bates of Gadehart and Bates was a guy named Lyndon Bates, and he was a dredge designer. And he also designed part of the Panama Canal. So 
his idea was to cut a canal across the island, to actually dig a canal on Galveston. You could take the sand from digging the canal and fill in behind the seawall, which would raise the level, and uh, the dredges that, of course, Bates would design uh, could then take sand from the bay, float down the canal to uh, and discharge it as it went, and when it dried, uh, there would be enough to raise the city. Plus, you end up, if you do this in the bay, do some of this work in the bay, you end up deepening your ship channel, which is never a bad thing, because if you go down to the Houston ship channel or any ship channel around the state of Texas, uh, dredging is a constant process. So that's what they decided to do. There were four dredges, four main dredges involved in this project. They were called the Leviathan, the Nereus II, the Holm, and the Triton. Now, there were a couple others. There was a dredge called the Galveston that did a little bit of work on the project. There was another dredge that was going to be similar to the Leviathan, uh, but it, it was built in Germany but sank on the way to Texas. Now, I'm going to describe to you where this canal was, and uh, I'll try to see if I can find a map to put on the website. First of all, the canal was going to be three miles long. It was going to be 20 feet deep, and it was going to be 200 feet across, which is uh, two-thirds of a football field. So this was not a tiny enterprise. This was a fairly significant canal, and it was built so wide so that two of these dredges could pass each other. One could be coming in to discharge the fill in the city while the other one was going out to get more sand from the bay. The canal began at the South Jetty at 8th Street and Avenue A. Now back then that would have been the far east side of the island. It's not anymore, uh, but uh, it would have been way east of the business district, and the canal would have come from uh, across what is now Harborside Drive, so from that part of Galveston Harbor or the port of Galveston, and it curved around the seawall. It would turn, it turned at 22nd Street and followed Avenue P and a half to 33rd Street. So, and then they built some turning basins uh, between 13th and 15th, and they built one at 33rd. So what this did was basically cut part of the island off. It created a peninsula of land between the seawall and the main part of the island and most of the housing in the entire business district. They had to move several thousand houses, which they did temporarily to accommodate the canal. And the city uh, cut a deal to pay property taxes for those that were displaced as sort of a rent. Uh, while they built the canal, they built a drawbridge across, a couple of them actually, across the canal to facilitate people going back and forth and to facilitate the railroad uh, getting to Fort San Jacinto, which uh, was on the east end of the island. That's the same location that the provisional Texas government was in in 1836. It's now part of the Coast Guard Station. And they began filling in through these enormous pipes from these dredges. They would fill in quarter-mile sections of the island until it was raised. But what do you do about all the buildings on the island? Well, what they did was raise those two, and it didn't matter if it was a house or a structure as large as St. Patrick's Church. They would take jack screws 
and, in a very carefully timed operation, no doubt, raise the entire structure. St. Patrick's, for example, was at 34th and Avenue K, and they raised that building five feet. They took 700 jack screws, and they took 100 men to raise this church one half inch at a time. It took them 35 days. And once they um, got the building up where they needed it, they poured a new concrete foundation. That building weighed 3,500 tons. That didn't matter to the people of Galveston. Along with every other structure in the area, they raised the church to. Those dredges would pump the what amounted to a slurry of mud and water into these areas, fill the sections, and then, of course, as it dried, uh, there was enough dirt in there that uh, all of a sudden your house, which had been on stilts in preparation for the raising, was all of a sudden back at ground level. Now, the fill wasn't the same height at every location. Uh, the wall, the seawall was 17 feet, uh, so in some places they raised it 17 feet. Uh, as you got down the island, though, uh, you didn't have to raise it quite as much. Some places weren't raised uh, hardly at all, but some of that fill was put in there uh, to make everything level. So you had people who had to put their houses on significant stilts in preparation for the project. And then you had some that just built levees around their houses to make sure that salt water that came from the bay wasn't going to get in their basements. And at the end of the project, uh, the people of Galveston who just a few years before had had their entire world turned upside down, had challenged in nature by building a seawall and raising the entire city, defying uh, the odds of destruction again. And they were soon to face that test. In 1915, a hurricane hit Galveston, and it hit with uh, almost the force, some say as much force, as the 1900 storm. But in the 1900 storm, where everything uh, on the front side of the island was destroyed and countless thousands of people lost their lives, in the 1915 storm, Galveston suffered only 11 people killed thanks to the seawall. So I think the uh, seawall was a miraculous feat of engineering uh, certainly given the beneficial effect it's had on the city of Galveston. There were many, many other extension projects, and the seawall now runs a significant distance down the west side of the island. It's been a tremendous success and uh, remains a great place to spend some time looking out over the ocean. The raising of the city of Galveston remains, at least to my thinking, one of the great civic projects in Texas history. If you think about it, the easiest thing to do would have been just to leave. I mean, my goodness, what are you going to do when you know there's going to be another hurricane? There were several before, there are going to be several after, and why in the world would you uh, want to spend the time and money and effort uh, with no guarantee of success of raising this city? That is exactly not what the people of Galveston, Texas did. They sat down and they said, we will solve this problem. This city will remain and this city will prosper, and that's exactly what they did, and it, it truly is amazing, and I'm grateful to uh, my ancestors and others that were involved in that project uh, because I certainly enjoy spending time down there today. 
So you see the 1900 storm was only the beginning. The seawall project and the grade raising project uh, was a tremendous ending uh, to that story and uh, has ended up saving a lot of Galveston lives in hurricanes subsequent. Now, I told you earlier I was going to tell you a little story about General Robert, who was one of the three engineers that participated in this project. Robert was born in uh, appropriately named Robertville, South Carolina. His father was a minister. Uh, several of his ancestors were ministers. He went to West Point and graduated in 1857 and was renowned nationwide for many of the projects around the country that improved harbors and improved areas around the river. Um, but something important happened in late 1875. He was asked to preside over a public meeting that was held at a church in his community. And he didn't really know how to preside over a public meeting, and who would know how to preside over a public meeting at this time? Um, and I suspect uh, being in a church, there's nothing like a good church meeting to cause chaos. And so he uh, tried to preside, and it was an ultimate disaster. He was so embarrassed that he decided he would never again even go to another meeting until he knew more about how meetings should be conducted in an orderly fashion. And so he decided to uh, take the reins and do something about this, and he wrote a little book called Robert's Rules of Order, still in use to this day. The current edition, I believe, is the 11th edition. And so that was a little anecdote about Henry Martin Robert uh, that I thought was interesting and a good indication of why the seawall project may have been conducted in such an orderly and successful fashion. Well, now we come to the part of the show I call Getting There, where I tell you how to go see some of the places in the episode. Well, obviously, uh, this episode has been all about Galveston. So head down to Galveston this summer. Enjoy that wonderful seawall and all the history that's on that island. And uh, you'll be walking the ground where in 1902 uh, they decided that enough was enough and they would protect that city against a hurricane. I will tell you one place to visit if you want to see a little snapshot of the grade-raising project, and that is the mansion on Broadway called Ashton Villa. Now, Ashton Villa, Ashton Villa was built in 1859, and for whatever reason, during the grade-raising, um, it, was, it was not in the area that was going to be raised, and it was not, therefore, uh, put up on those jack screws and raised, but an area south of Ashton Villa had been raised. So the owners decided to um, bring in some sand. So what they did is they went to the west side of Galveston and they got some sand uh, and leveled their yard so that so they did their own little grade raising where uh, they could be level with the area that was south of them. Well, in doing so, what they did is buried three feet of their front fence and they, well actually the entire fence and uh, they also buried part of the basement so if you drive by Ashton Villa on Broadway and the fence looks a little short that's why and there are other areas and I don't know specific histories of other houses but there are plenty of fences on the front and these houses that were built and stood during the grade raising that do look a little short so um, I think there were probably 
uh, people were all over the map when it came to how well prepared they were for that grade raising. And so you'll see the effects of that around the city. There are also some monuments to the building of the seawall itself and the grade raising. Uh, On the the seawall about 16th Street, there's a plaque where the first piling of the seawall was driven. And then uh, on seawall and 23rd, there's a monument to the grade raising of the island. And then the um, monument to the actual seawall is at 47th Street, I believe, uh, which is a very nice monument and has the names of the engineers, etc., on the seawall, and you can't miss it. It's uh, red granite, and and, uh, you'll see it. So go down to Galveston and enjoy it, and you can thank uh, Noble, Robert, and Ripley for designing a seawall that has protected the island uh, since the great storm of 1900. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. I want to thank everybody uh, for sending your friends to the show. The listenership has increased, and we're over 95,000 downloads worldwide at Wise About Texas. So keep sending the show to your friends, and please like and share our Facebook page, Wise About Texas. You can also find the show on Twitter at Wise About Texas and Instagram at the same place at wise about texas i hope uh, the end of your school year is successful and as you prepare for those summer road trips don't forget to take a little texas history with you at wiseabouttexas.com and send in your suggestions for episodes i've gotten some just tremendous listener feedback we've had some great conversations i've learned a lot and uh, shared a lot of stories so shoot me an email at host at wiseabouttexas.com Until next time, go out and do something for Texas today. God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.